Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 82, Revelation, Eat This Scroll. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation 10, verses 1 through 11, which is actually all of chapter 10. And just to remind you, we are still in the sixth trumpet as it began in chapter 9 and will continue on through the first half of chapter 11. And so the big thrust of chapter 10 is beginning that stage of looking into the scroll that the Lamb has received from the one seated on the throne in chapter 5. And also to remember that judgments alone, as they've been demonstrated throughout chapters 8 and chapter 9, do not in fact produce repentance, and they do not in fact draw in the nations. And so a big portion of what chapter 10 is introducing, and we'll follow it up with episodes into chapter 11, is what will it take to bring repentance and salvation to the nations. And so I am excited to get into this chapter with you. We are ramping up toward very much what will be the heart of the book, and that is in chapter 11. So I'm excited just to tackle chapter 10 with you today. Let's get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 10 verses 1 through 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay." but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, as we jump into looking at this chapter, I kind of want to draw your attention in a number of different directions. And then we're going to land the plane with this idea about the eating of the scroll But that is that in verse 1, we have this description of a mighty angel who is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And there's a lot of differing discussion here about just who this creature is. Um, If you're real familiar with Revelation or familiar with portions of the Old Testament, you'll recognize similarities between um, his face being like the sun, um, Jesus himself in chapter 1 was described as his face was shining like the sun. 
you know, in full strength. And um, if you go back into the Old Testament to images of the Lord, um, you know, the Daniel's vision of the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. And here you see this angel um, wrapped in a cloud. And then, of course, the, the radiance of the glory of God, which led Israel through the wilderness, that, that kind of looks like, you know, this rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. You know, we have the, the cloud and the pillar of fire that the Lord led his people through in the wilderness. And so there are some commentators who think that despite the fact that the word angel appears here, that, that this is Jesus himself. Um, and the, part of the reason for saying that is in, into chapter 11, that this exact angel will say, these are my two witnesses. And so they're witnessing to me and the me therefore being Jesus, which is the point of the whole book of Revelation. Um, and, and yet when we, when we look at the way John has crafted this, I, I don't actually take that, that reasoning. And yet I don't nitpick with those who do. I'm just trying to explain how I see this, um, as far as it's concerned. Um, but we're told that we saw, John saw another mighty angel. Um, and it's interesting because the last time John saw a mighty angel and here's another mighty angel. So in the book of Revelation, we ought to jump back to the first time or the, the most recent time that John saw a mighty angel. And it was in chapter 5, which interestingly enough was also dealing with this scroll. And so along the same discussions was the fact that the one seated on the throne had a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And John was upset because he couldn't find anybody in the creation worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals. And then you remember one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then we proceeded on through the remainder of the chapter. Well, as it was unfolding there, we saw that the one seated on the throne had a scroll. He hands it to the lamb, and the lamb now is going to open the seals and is going to announce this unfolding plan. And so in that setting, we had the one seated on the throne handing a scroll to the lamb, and the lamb now, with it in his possession, is able to open it. Well, the way the book of Revelation is structured, if you remember all the way back to verse 1, chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servant John the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And so what you have is a pattern. You have the one seated on the throne or the Lord or God handing something to Jesus, the, the lamb, his son, who hands it to an angel who then hands it to John. And then John then relays that message to the churches. It, this is, a, it's a, a vertical pattern that's always followed. So it goes God to Christ, to an angel, to John, and John to the churches. And that's the pattern we've seen all through the book of Revelation. And I think that pattern is still happening here. Because not only does the mighty angel hearken us back to chapter 5, where the first mighty angel was spoken about, but it's the only other time in Revelation, the first and the most recent, where the scroll itself has been spoken about. The Lord hands the lamb a scroll, and here an angel has received this scroll from the lamb. Now, this is the third step in our sequence, who is now giving it to John. In fact, John's instructed to go ask for this angel to give him the scroll, and he takes it, and he's then told to eat it. And so what I actually think is happening, and um, a, a commentator by the name of Eugene Boring puts it this way, and I think it's helpful, really. He said, the figure of the angel is transparent 
to the figures of God and Christ who speak through him. And, and that's, this is actually why Eugene Boring says, yeah, when you listen to the description of this angel, it does resemble the, you know, the God of Israel. It does resemble uh, the way Jesus is described in Revelation 1. And that's intentional, not because it's Jesus, but because he's in the presence of God and the Lamb so powerfully and so perfectly that his very nature begins to embody and resemble what theirs is. And so he goes on. He says, although the figures are kept somewhat distinct, the imagery overlaps in such a way that God, Christ, angel are all presented to the mind's eye by the one picture. And I really think that's helpful. So, you know, make what you want of that. I'm going to conclude that this is another mighty angel. We're referencing back to the scroll. In fact, the entirety of Revelation 10 is about a scroll. And, and don't be sidetracked by the fact that this one has a little scroll. And in, in chapter 5, we're told that it's just a regular scroll. Again, there's discussion about this. This isn't the same scroll. This is the same scroll. The Greek words used here to translate little scroll or the other scroll, they're used interchangeably even throughout this chapter. I think this is the same scroll that John was given or that John saw the one seated on the throne give to the Lamb in Revelation 5, he has now proceeded through opening it, beginning the trumpet announcements of the judgment, and as I've been sharing in previous episodes, we are rapidly approaching the contents of this scroll. And so this angel is now going to receive it opened from the lamb who's encouraging John to eat it, and we'll get to what that means in a minute, and then wants to prophesy to many as he says in verse 11, you must again prophesy about many people's and nations, and languages, and kings. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, really, on these seven thunders. I've referenced this before. I, I can't actually remember which episode I talked about this in, but John hears these seven thunders sounding, and he's about to write what they record. Instead, he, he hears um, a voice from heaven telling him to seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And in the progression of the book of Revelation, when we read it as a whole, you remember that I've told you that the seal judgments, the seals of the scroll are released on the earth and they affect one quarter of the earth. When the trumpet judgments come in, they affect one third. And we're told this repeatedly throughout chapters eight and nine. We know the bold judgments, which are about to be released in chapters 15 and 16, are going to affect the entire world. And if you remember your days of fractions in elementary school, you know that one-fourth is a, you know, 25%, one-third is 33%, and one over one is 100%. That's the bowls. Well, as you're following the progression of fractions and they continue to get larger, you might assume that these judgments here, these thunders, as they're called, might very well affect one half of the earth, but we don't really know. In fact, before there even a chance to be released or for John to write down what he sees when they're released, he doesn't. He seals it up, and that's possibly because we know they're going to remain sealed. We're not going to see the unfolding and what might happen to the nations if they underwent the judgment that is coming through the thunders. Instead, they're not, re they're not revealed. The, the contents of that thunders are, remain sealed. But what is revealed to John is the content of the scroll. And that's really the thrust of this latter half of the chapter. And that is that this angel comes to him 
And he says, this angel or the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, all throughout our series, probably not as much as I could have, but I'm always trying to remind you of our Old Testaments when it comes time to understanding um, the New Testament and really when it comes time to understand the book of Revelation. Because this strange image about eating a scroll, this is not unique to John. John isn't making this up. This isn't something totally foreign to him. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel had a very similar experience at the beginning of his prophetic ministry. At the, the end of chapter 2 in the book of Ezekiel through the first few verses of chapter 3, let me just read to you what we already have in the Hebrew Scriptures long before John penned Revelation. Here's what the Lord says to Ezekiel, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, Feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, just a casual reading of these two passages ought to spark a lot of similarity here. Um, open your mouth and eat what I give you. Eat this scroll uh, from from. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 1 that's actually where I got the title for this episode it, it doesn't even come from the book of Revelation it comes from Ezekiel 3 uh, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it even the way he refers to the scroll it says it had writing on the front and on the back well that's the same exact way that John describes the seal or the scroll rather in chapter 5 it had writing on the front and on the back and then he adds that it was sealed with seven seals but notice here that for Ezekiel, there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And so these are words of judgment that are coming. And Ezekiel also is able to experience, as John will, a strange mixture here of something that will make his stomach bitter, but in his mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I don't know all of the nuanced ways to explain this. Again, these are symbols. These are meant to be imagined. They're meant to be pictured. Me even trying to teach through the book of Revelation in a linear fashion is somehow, is sometimes um, a bit uh, backwards in the way Revelation is even supposed to be understood. So I'm not going to try to dot every little I and cross every little T here. But what we're looking at is a mixture what we're seeing is it, it somehow makes your stomach bitter. It's uncomfortable. It upsets your stomach, and yet the taste of it is great. 
So there's these mixed metaphors here, and you might say the same thing, right? Like, I mean, you know, cookie dough from a bowl with a spoon tastes great when it goes in your mouth, and after you've eaten 14 spoonfuls of it, your stomach's going to wish you hadn't done that, okay? I mean, we, we have realities like this in our own life. I saw posted the other day from a friend who owns her own bakery in town, and she posted a bowl that was on a scale in her bakery of 21 pounds of cookie dough and saying how she's getting ready for the next day when they're going to have freshly baked cookies. And, you know, my response to her was, turn the oven off, give me a spoon and I'll be, I'll be content right there. And yet I know that if I sat down and ate what I wanted to of that bowl of cookie dough, it would be sweet in my mouth. But when I was finished eating that, I would pay the price later. And so there's a mixture here. Um, you know, those kinds of foods that make your stomach feel great, right? Don't often taste good. So, you know, and this is a, a silly example, but I think what John is beginning to recognize is there is something about the revealed contents of the scroll. There's something that he is supposed to internalize about these contents that is going to be a mixture of sweetness and gloom. Lamentation and mourning and woe and praise and glory and honor and rejoicing. And I think part of the sweetness is going to be what we're told in Revelation 5. When the Lamb opens the scroll and all the praise is, is, you know, is poured out, and here's what is happening. The, the new song that the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, and um, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, Revelation 5.9 says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The, the praise, the honor, the amazement, the, 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 the glory, the sweet tasting nature the blessings that are to be poured on the nations. And, and you heard the fourfold repeated phrase there, every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, this is the same target group that John is told to prophesy to after eating this scroll in verse 11 of chapter 10. You are to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's this fourfold description, this four corners of the earth, all the nations, all the peoples, the very some of which the very same people are not responding appropriately when their lives are crashing and spiraling out of control. When the judgments of the Lord are coming on the earth, people do not see those. And, and if their hearts are hardened, they're not able to repent from those kinds of things. In fact, when they see life crashing all around them, they grasp for more control, not less. They seek to you know protect them themselves more um, and, and forget about those in the world who actually need protection. This is not the way it's supposed to be, but John's focus is on the four corners of the earth. It's on all the peoples of the earth, and he's supposed to take this in, this scroll, and in some sense, he finds it sweet. It's a blessing message of hope, of redemption, of promise, of, of excitement for the world and yet it's also bitter in his stomach because there are going to be some who still may not see the truth. We'll find out in chapter 13 that there is deception going on with the nations and that they are blinded to the realities and the beauties and the glories of the gospel. 
They do not look at Jesus and see anything other than a man. They do not see the hope of the kingdom of God. They're caught up in the deceits and the deception and the lies of the beast. That's a bitter reality. Our world right now is experiencing bitter realities. And there are millions and millions who do not have the joy of Christ, the sweetness of the honey of Christ to endure the bitterness. For Christians who look out, it makes our stomachs bitter that the message we have that can provide so much hope for the world is not readily embraced by large portions of the world. It ought to make us weep. Which is why I know Paul encourages the Romans for the Christians there to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's two sides of the same scenario. We weep because those don't honor Christ who could have. They don't see the deception that they're under and want to turn to him to, to be free from those things. And yet at the exact same time, we hold on to our freedom. We hold on to joy. And we are attempting to embody that joy in the midst of a world that sees nothing to be joyful about. And so John is, in, is instructed to eat this scroll and what in the world does that mean? Now, trying to wrap our minds around what we might already think it means to eat this scroll, I bet not too many of you are far off in what your imagination can withstand. Um, it's really not too difficult, I don't think, for us to get the image. So we're told that the stomach, John's stomach will be made bitter, but in his mouth it'll taste sweet as honey. I mean, we even have bittersweet as a, um, as a metaphor that we use in regular language today. It's bittersweet. You know, um, someone's grandmother passes away after many long years of Alzheimer's. It's a bittersweet reality. No one wants to say goodbye to grandma. No one wishes that her life would come to an end. And yet we know that the life she was living was not the life that we knew her as. It wasn't grandma like we knew her. We know now that she's no longer suffering. There's a sweetness to that. She's at peace. She's at rest. And yet it's bitter because she's no longer here. So we have that reality in our own minds. And if we go back even several chapters in the Bible, back into the Gospels, when John the Baptist first arrives on the scene, and it says there was a man preaching out in the wilderness. He had a leather belt around his waist and, you know, a garment made of camel's hair and his food was locusts and wild honey. And you're like, man, what a, what a weird guy. I mean, <laughs> your food was locusts and wild honey. And yet if we stop and ponder those two images in particular, at least with honey being related here to John, it's going to taste sweet as honey. John the Baptist, to eat locusts and wild honey, locusts, as we've already seen in Revelation, but even back to the plagues in Egypt and Joel's comments about plagues in the book of Joel, locusts were destructive. They, they brought judgment and they destroyed the crops, which then would cause you know, famine amongst the people. Um, but, but the promised land, numerous times in the first several books of the Old Testament, was referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. This was going to be a place of abundance. It was going to be a place of, of richness and, and pleasant living. And so for John the Baptist to eat both locusts, 
the the judgment, the the um, you know the negative outworkings of life, the the hardships that people face as a result of their their waywardness, and sweetness as honey, the the blessings and the the benefits and the values that God pours out on the world. For John to eat those as his diet, I think in a strange way is similar to what's happening with John. John the Baptist consumed those things, and his message then was very much one of, if you're able to repent, blessings are going to abound for you if you are unwilling to see your own sin and hard-heartedness and idolatry. Judgment awaits you. So John's message was one of judgment and blessing. So was Jesus's, to be, to be precise. And John's is the same thing. It is a bitter reality, but it is something sweet as honey. It's bitter for the nations and sweet for the nations, but it's also bitter and sweet for John. So John himself, don't forget, is on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now the word of God and the testimony of Jesus are sweet realities. They're blessings for the world. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord is here to shower blessings on you. But John's very existence, while he's writing the book, in real time for John, is a bitter reality. He's been exiled to an island that's a virtual prison. It's not a happy place to be. So um, there are realities that exist within Christianity that are the exact same reality. We have a faithful Savior. We have freedom in Christ. We have the joy of the Lord, and He provides us with strength. And yet, in a world that doesn't see Him as its rightful King, hardship accompanies those values and those beliefs. And so for John to take into himself a scroll with with these certain things written on it and to prophesy to many peoples and nations and languages and kings, what this signifies to us is, yes, the blessings await the nations. That's a sweet reality, sweet as honey, in fact. But the judgment that these nations are entrapped in, blinded by the beast or the false prophet or the harlot of of Babylon in, in Revelation 17, all of these things are a bitter reality because they do not see the truth. So what is it going to take to break through that bitterness, that hard-heartedness. That's what Revelation 11 is about. But John, notice, is told to eat this scroll, eat this message, eat these words, eat this contents of this scroll so that he can prophesy, so that he can bear witness, so that he can tell the world. But I want you to notice John's told to eat the scroll. He's not told to read it. He's not told to understand it or to discuss it or to think about it or just to talk about it. Now, I'm not minimizing any of those things. It's great to think about it and read it and study it and discuss it. I mean, goodness, I'm doing a podcast to try to help you think and understand and, and wrestle. But, but, it, but it's important to point out that he's commanded to eat it. And what I think you and I know instinctively what that means, it's to consume it or to take it into himself. And the effect that it has on him is directly related then to the kind of message he is being asked to prophesy. It is a bitter one and it is a sweet one, both for the nations and for the one doing the prophesying. Now, and when we look at what John's being told to do here, 
And if we compare it with something that you and I are familiar with, okay, uh, most of my listeners, I'm assuming most of them, are Christians. And even if you're not, I don't think this will be a hard reality to relate with. But let's compare it with the Christian practice of communion. Um, And if we do that, I think it will help us clarify just what's being symbolized by the eating of this scroll. So when a Christian, you, me, our churches, when a Christian participates, this is the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. It's fascinating and is worth a really lengthy discussion. But when a Christian participates in the body and blood of Jesus, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, what are we doing? Now, I I grew up in a context that just what we were doing was we were remembering Jesus's sacrifice for us. Now, that's true, but I think more is going on according to Paul and according to Jesus as he's offering the body and blood to his disciples. I guess the reason why I'm thinking something more is going on is, is maybe gotten at by asking a better question, and that would be, why are we eating and drinking in the first place? Why is communion something that involves eating and drinking? Why not just, again, something we read or recite or try to understand or discuss or think about amongst ourselves? Why do we gather at church and take something into us? Well, I think, aside from the fact that shared meals throughout human history have always symbolized fellowship with others, and that's a major reason why we do communion together and not by ourselves, but in addition to that, we choose to take into ourselves that which we believe will nourish us, fuel us, and give us life, if we can use that kind of word. You know, if if you do not eat, you do not live So uh, if you do not drink, you do not live. So we are taking into ourselves things that we believe nourish, fuel us, and give us life. And again, back to our discussion about cookie dough. You know, it's sweet as honey in my mouth, but it's going to make my stomach bitter because that's not the kind of thing all by itself that can give me life, that can fuel me. I'm going to need meats. I'm going to need protein. I'm going to need some vegetables and some fruit and plenty of water. I mean, there are a number of things that I need in order to prevent you know, bitterness in my stomach. But, but my point is this. When we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, what is happening in that moment? Well, by faith, when you and I reach out our hands to receive the body and blood of Jesus, what we are saying with our hands and with our lives We are declaring that we believe, again, by faith, that's what this is, right? We believe that life, Jesus' resurrection life, our spiritual life, his offer to the world of receiving eternal life, yes, that kind of life, based on what we know Jesus endured in order to bring that kind of life to us, rejection, suffering, vulnerability, and death, By faith, we reach our hands out and we say we believe that life comes through death. We believe that strength comes through weakness. We believe that glory comes through shame. We saw it with Jesus. We believe it in him. And we want to consume that same reality 
for our own lives. This is what is happening when we eat the bread and the wine. And so when we take into ourselves these sacramental realities, we are embodying the belief that our life, our hope, our strength, our glory will also come through death and that the strength we're looking for in our own lives will also come through weakness, just like it did with Jesus. And so for John to eat the scroll means that he is internalizing his prophetic message. He is taking it into himself so as to truly live it in his own life. And this is probably best embodied by the apostle Paul himself, who to the book of, to the church in Thessalonica, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see, Paul's reality embodied, I'm not just coming to share, or if you want to know the, the regular word there, it's I've not only come to participate with you in the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We've participated with you with our lives We've told you the truth. We shared the truth with you, but we embodied it with our lives in the way that we did it. And if you go all the way back to the episode, I believe episode 38, the one that immediately preceded our Revelation series, it was that episode and walking through Paul's embodiment of what he fills up that is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And we walked through the last full paragraph of Colossians chapter 1. I could highly encourage you <clears throat> excuse me to listen to that episode again because Paul by his life embodies the message of reconciliation that he is preaching to the churches that he is preaching to the world and his life his ministry of reconciliation perfectly matches perfectly embodies his message of reconciliation and Paul is therefore able in the book of 2 Corinthians to say something as stunning as this. Let me get to it for just a moment. Paul is able to say in the book of 2 Corinthians <clears throat> that he commends him, he, we as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And I want you to listen to the bitter realities per particularly that Paul is talking about here for just a minute. He says, we, we commend ourselves in every way, 2 Corinthians 6, 4, by great endurance. And here he goes, here's a list. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Wow, that sounds bitter. Like what kind of a life is that? Is that something that you're excited about, Paul? But Paul goes on in verse six and here's what he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. Wow, well, that sounds pretty sweet. Those are the kinds of realities I wanna see embodied in my own life. And Paul says, in my life, they're both present all the time. And the reason why they're both present in my life is because they were both present with Christ. He is embodying the reality that he is preaching about. So it would be like us 
walking into a, you know, a setting with our children at home where our children are arguing with one another and they are raising their voices. And how many of us as parents have walked into the room and after listening to what we perceive you know, in our great wisdom as being senseless argumentation and senseless shouting by our children, what do we do? We, we get up from our, our place, we put our phone down or we stop making dinner for a second or we turn down the TV and we yell to our kids, stop shouting at each other. Now what's happening in that moment? What's happening in that moment is we have a message of reconciliation, right? We have Paul's message of reconciliation where we are trying to get people to get along with each other, but we have not embodied the ministry of reconciliation by the way that we've gone about preaching our message because we are using the same destructive manner of shouting and arguing that our children are using, but because we are the parent, we're falling back on that and saying, I have the right to simply tell you what to do and you need to listen to me. What Paul is saying and and does so to the Thessalonians is right before the passage I read where he says, we've shared with you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you've been very dear to us. Paul refers to himself as a nursing mother caring for her children to this church. And then a few verses later refers to himself as a caring father. So Paul knows these family metaphors are powerful and he knows that the best way to share the gospel of God with our kids, to watch them live into that reality is for you and for me as parents to embody that reality through gentleness, through love, through patience, through forbearance. Why? Because those are all of the attributes Jesus embodied when he brought the gospel of God to us in the first place. A harsh answer stirs up wrath, but a gentle answer, or a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1. It's the same idea. Gentleness can diffuse wrath. It can diffuse anger. Patience can diffuse people, you know, raging against one another or, or what have you. And so John is being asked here to internalize a bitter and a sweet reality, to take it into himself and by faith believe that it will call for him to embody the very message that the nations desperately need to hear. Why? Because judgments alone can't bring them salvation just like threats of judgment alone, never could set Israel on a right path toward God. Jesus' biggest headbutting anywhere in the Gospels is with the religious leaders who believed that the only thing the people of the world needed were to be told what to do, and when they weren't able to do it as well as the Pharisees did, the Pharisees found themselves justified in condemning those people. Jesus comes and is compassionate and is gracious and is kind toward the outcasts, toward the sinners, toward those who don't have their heads screwed on quite right or who have lost their way. And he infuriates the Pharisees. We don't want to be Pharisees. We want to embody realities the way John is instructed to and the way we are going to see those realities embodied in and through John for the churches in chapter 11. That's the heart of the book of Revelation. What will it take to convert the nations? What will it take 
to win the hearts of the nations? What kind of power is available that can break through hard hearts? That's the thrust of the book, and that's the call for the church. And so that's all the time we're going to take for this week. I know I was feeling a little preachy today, and I'm excited for that. It feels like I haven't been expressing these thoughts. I skip a week by inserting a different episode, and I'm ready to go back to Revelation. But I'm thankful for those of you still listening in. Uh, Please reach out if you've got questions or comments or thoughts about the podcast. Thank you for some who've left me ratings or reviews. Um, Would love even if, and if there are things you don't love, about the podcast and 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 want to leave a lower rating add a review to it so i can learn from you if there are things i've done that have made it difficult to to track with me then i want to hear about those things um i'm even thinking and have been for well only a day or so my wife brought this suggestion to me and i'm thankful for it is looking at how long we're taking to go through revelation and i am really just trying to work out my own thoughts and trying to bring you along but i've been thinking about having some sort of highlight episodes that come later where I can hit what are the big themes what in, in you know, a, a handful of episodes. That way you can try to remember as you go back through it what this is going to look like. So I've got some interviews planned in the next several weeks, so look for those in our Buy the Book series. And uh, thank you for those who are supporting this podcast continually on a monthly basis. That's really helpful. And I really appreciate your, your support, especially in, in um, tricky financial times like the one we're in. So again, that's all the time we'll take for this week. Talk to you next time.